Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, where we bring you weekly conversations with purpose-driven leaders. Our focus is to share meaningful conversations with purpose-driven people having a big social impact in our community. Our mission is to enable you to listen, connect, and grow. You can learn more at humansofpurpose.com.au. We live the equivalent of 1.7 planets, but we have only one planet. Mm. So everyone, Australia, Australia lives the equivalent of 5.2 planets. So we are degrading more than we can kind of renew. Um, but having said that, in the current environment, in the current generation, in the current way of thinking, um, commercial acumen is extremely important. And if you look at social, I think social sustainability is the one that's tough to crack. Welcome back to the podcast and terrific to have you with us once more. Well, those were the prophetic words of Dr. Kaushik Sridhar. Kaushik wears a number of hats. I'll just name a few, otherwise we'll run out of time. He is National Sustainability Manager at Regis Aged Care. He's a business coach at La Trobe University. He's a non-executive member of the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation. And he's also an occasional adjunct lecturer at RMIT University. What do you have planned this year for your own leadership and personal growth journey? What do you need to be your best self every day? For me, I try and do something each year that's a combination of learning, gaining wisdom, experience, and really optimizing my peak physical condition or fitness. It's generally pretty hard to get both the mental and physical from one robust uh, experiential program, but I've managed to find one that does both, and that's Mountains and Marathon's Honolulu Marathon Leadership Program. It's a six-month leadership program where you'll develop clarity and personal power, and your program's going to finish with an ethical physical challenge, and that's going to take you the next one to Oahu in the heart of Hawaii for the Honolulu Marathon. Now, I was pretty blown away by some of the testimony from recent graduates of the uh, Two Oceans Marathon program, talking about transforming their lives, being more connected to friends and family, and very much about overcoming um, many of the challenges associated with stepping outside their comfort zone. So I highly recommend you check out this program and uh, submit an inquiry. Head to mountainsandmarathons.world slash Honolulu. And in the where did you hear about this program section, if you include humans of purpose there, then our good friends at Mountains and Marathons will uh, include or cover the full costs of flights to and from Hawaii valued at about $1,500 per person. So that's a, a nice little perk there. Head on down to mountainsandmarathons.world slash Honolulu to learn more. A quick shout out and thank you as always to our wonderful patrons who support the podcast each month including Joel F, Stuart M, McCartan, and Misha D and his wife. So thanks very much, guys. You help make the show what it is and help us keep on ticking uh, every week. If you too want to support the podcast, and I encourage you to do so, just head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose, and I'll leave a link in the show notes. Kaushik, glad you could join me, mate. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. Really appreciate it. Well, I've been uh, thinking about you since your uh, first talk at Rotary, uh, which I was a a guest, and what what couldn't have been a more fitting talk for what I'd be interested to hear about, your journey into sustainability, working with one of the largest um, aged care organisations in the country. And I thought the way that you articulated um, some of the bigger problems that you discussed was just terrific. So I'm honoured to have you. Oh, thanks, Mike. Um, it's been it's been a twelve year journey into sustainability, and one that's been very humbling, challenging, and inspiring. You know, all at the same time. Um, you know, just to give you a bit of a, a background about how I got got into this space, Please. because 
it's I don't think it's it's for everyone, but those who can be a part of it certainly are in it for the long haul, and it can be a really enjoyable ride. I started my career as a as a tennis player, so you know that um, was the former professional athlete part of your LinkedIn yes, profile. <laughs> yes, I just awesome. slipped that in there, yeah, so it, yeah, you know yeah. it, it's a bit of a conversation starter. Yeah, absolutely, um, but uh, tennis was my my passion. It was my bread and butter, and it's really what I thought I would end up, you know, playing on the professional circuit and. You know, being an only child to slightly traditional Indian parents, uh, leaving them at the age of 13, going to Texas to train with John Newcomb, I thought this was it. You know, I'm going to be uh, all about tennis. And eight years later, I, after having a short coaching stint with Margaret Court in Albury as a tennis coach, I pretty much realized that this was not where I wanted to be. Um, and so back in 2008, came to Sydney to do an MBA wanted to specialize in strategic finance. And it was during this time, it was during this time, Mike, that I had an opportunity to do an internship with a company called Unisys. Yep. It's a global IT organization, and they wanted to do a bit of a carbon uh, modeling uh, assessment for, for their for their uh, operations in APAC, Asia Pacific. And t- 2008 started this. Um, we, so, we, oh, that's, um, and so during my, I guess, uh, time with Unisys, that's where I really got to understand what is the meaning of the the the, the term climate change. What the, what does carbon emissions mean? You know, why do companies want to get started on this journey uh, of measuring their environmental impact? And actually, how do big businesses, how do executive teams think about a topic that can be you know quite tangible or intangible depending on how you look at it? And you talked a bit about you talk about well as well about um, like defining sustainability, which I thought was really interesting. Yes, and sustainability can be can have a different meaning to different people. Um, and I guess what I've learned in the last 12 years, Mike, is having worked with so many large businesses with universities and also sitting on boards of not-for-profits that deal with sustainability, the definition, can it's just interchangeable depending on what the business or that organization's priorities are or what their material issues might be. Um, so what I learned from Unisys was it was all about the environment. It had nothing to do with social. Mm. It was really about managing and minimizing the energy impacts of their operations. Um, but 12 years later, Mike, you know, having roles at Ernst & Young, KPMG, Regis, teaching students at University of Melbourne and RMIT who are, you know, masters in accounting, masters in finance, teaching them the, not the, not the, not necessarily the importance of this topic, but the value of knowing a little bit about this topic um, has really, you know, made me a, a pragmatist and a passion passionate person at the same time. Um, is that a difficult uh, balance to maintain? It is very difficult because it really depends on on who your stakeholders are and what their priorities are at that point in time. Um, you know, at KPMG, for example, it was about. Um, taking such a, a large organization uh, on a journey when there were quite a few potential non-believers in that topic, um, and in my current role in a, in this, I think the second largest aged care company in Australia, we're literally starting from scratch, um, and you, passion is very difficult to inbuild when you're starting from scratch mm. because it's a new topic, especially something like sustainability. So passion's having, also not a budget item as well. So exactly. <laughs> passion, intangible things like brand, reputation, yep. passion, yep. happiness. Yep. You know, if you t- talk about social impact and social metrics, businesses are still a long way away from understanding what this means. Um, so in 12 years, Mike, I guess to conclude that, that opening, uh, uh, uh yes. <laughs> um, it's, it's been a, it's been, 
one of the best things that I think I've ever chosen for my life. And tennis built me for what I do today. Because with tennis, it's an individual sport and it teaches you things about resilience and being mentally really strong. And in a field like sustainability and CSR, every day you're going to hit your head against the wall. Mm. Every day you're going to have someone not believing in what you're talking about. Every day you're going to have a challenge. And sometimes it can be quite intimidating and daunting. Um, and you just need to, I guess, get those principles you've picked up as a child doing whatever it is you love. And for me, tennis was what laid the foundation and the ingredients for me to do what I do today. That's fascinating. So you drew the the things around managing self and optimizing self uh, from tennis. But it's interesting because when I look at you today, I see a guy who I think is like the quintessential team player. Uh, but tennis, you know, I think is such a uh, high performance individualistic sport. Yes. Um so it's it's like a it's like a football team it's like systems thinking where you know the sum of the parts is greater than the whole with tennis as an individual sport you are accountable for the wins and the losses um but i think once i finished tennis uh when i went into tennis coaching that's where i you know interacted with with people ranging from ages 3 to 83 um and quickly realized from a stakeholder engagement point of view how to navigate and communicate with people to get them to buy into your agenda. Yes. So you want them to hit a good forehand or a good backhand. How do you get them to do that? And sometimes it's not just about you. It's about that connection. And I think sustainability is about bringing people together. It's about that football team. Yep. Um, but tennis has that individual resilience building mindset mm. that I, I used really well combined with the coaching to have that that. Um, holistic approach. well said well said so t- talk to me about sort of the non-believers and resistance to a sustainability agenda because i think i feel that um wouldn't it be the case that today most people are well and truly understand a need to be sustainable hmm. um so then for an organization you know how does that manifest in whether you know there's opposition at what level does that opposition come what texture and what shape and um I'd love to hear some ways that you're able to navigate that yeah, so I think um, I think with like with anything, Mike, there's going to be believers and non-believers. Um, and the fun of what we do in sustainability is because we're a passionate bunch, uh, but we're, because we're also a pragmatic bunch, we're ready to take on that challenge. So um, if you look at the ASX 100, for example, in Australia, 90% of them have some sort of sustainability reporting or sustainability in their language. But if you asked me honestly, what percentage of that ASX 100 truly believes in that sustainability agenda? That's mm. another uh, conversation. Um, so I we'll, think we'll reflect on that quickly. Do, do you think that there's a significant chunk that probably um, it's more about how it sort of looks or the optics? Yes. So, uh, so it's, that's a good question. And I think I set myself up for a response. Um, it's very hard to know who talks about these issues from the heart mm. and who talks about it with their head. You know, there are amazing companies out there who have embedded this within their purpose. And there are other companies potentially, you know, um, uh, I, I hate using this phrase, but potentially lip service. Yep. Um, and we have to be very careful when we look at statistics saying, you know, X percent of this, uh, you know, ASX 100 or DJSI or whatever this, the, the stock exchange might be do sustainability. We have to be very careful. Yep. I had a chat earlier today with a couple of uh, kids from Monash um, and they were, they're both from India and they're talking about how there's a mandatory requirement for stock listed companies in India. Mm. They had, I think they have to donate 
22% of their profits to mm. CSR, mm, to, to not-for-profits. And e- even then, there's a, there's a bit of a struggle there for really um, spreading the wealth to companies that can have a lot of impact, you know, in that not-for-profit space. Yep. Um, I truly believe non-believers are a plenty. Mm. And I truly believe that uh, quite a lot of companies who d- do these sort of things, maybe looking at operational efficiencies yes. um, or some of the intangible things that you can put on a balance sheet. Yes. Um, the holy grail of embedding it within purpose, doing integrated reporting, mm. really measuring the social impacts on the SROI, social return investments. I think there are very few, a very handful of those. But having said that, you can't isolate environmental and social impact from economic impact. Mm. I'm a firm believer that they all go hand in hand. Yep. And if you think about the triple bottom line, if you think about um, um, you know, integrated reporting, we have to look at all these three uh, things um, equally. Um, and so going back to your question about non-believers, there are many at the executive level, um, at a government level, at yep. an educational level. Um, and that I guess some of the th- tools that I use and um, <laughs> trying to engage with non-believers is firstly getting to know who your audience is, yep. getting to know who your target market is mm. and getting to know what makes them tick because not everyone is going to jump on the sustainability train from yep. day one. So what, I mean, what I loved about your approach uh, when you went to Regis and to start sort of getting the buy-in from people, you talked a lot about having those long initial conversations mm. um, and coffees and, you know, doing the, doing the coffee rounds. Is that a big sort of part of how you, you know, you, you've, you give shape to a problem and engage the non-believers? I think, um, yeah, definitely all the, the, the meetings are important. Um, but I think it's also important to know exactly how the S word, which is sustainability, is defined and articulated yep. by an organization. Um, now you want to think, do you want to have it defined by a few different exec members or do you want it to have, you, do you want it to be kind of the motherhood definition of the organization or the entity itself? Um, and so I think, yes, the first step is actually finding out the lay of the land doing a bit of a stakeholder map. Um, and it's not just in my current role, Mike, in, in anything, even if I'm a lecturer, when mm. I used to teach at University of Melbourne, I would have 30 students. Mm. And the first question I would ask them is, how many of you are here because you have to be? And how many of you are here because you want to be? Um, because the ta- the class that I taught, taught was an elective, but it was also a, com- a compulsory class for some students. Um, and I actually wanted to know who really cared to be there yeah. and who were there just because it was kind of a, a tick in the box. Well, it also helps you decide how you're going to frame the material and um, how, to, how to present it because, you know, there's many different packages to give something. Uh, it might be the same thing, but it's how do you, you know, how do you package that up so it resonates with your audience? Yes, uh, exactly. And if you can overcome that hurdle, then the rest becomes quite straightforward. And I've seen companies, you know, on different journeys in embedding sustainability within their business. Some companies take three years, some take five, some take eight, some take 10, and some take multiple decades. Um, and I think it's it's not just about turnover, you know, people leaving and you have to re-engage the, the new crop that come into a business. Um, if you lay the foundation up front really, really clearly, mm and you have everyone on the same page as you. I know it might sound quite simple on on face value, but it's actually really hard to do that. Oh, yes. And demonstrating the wins. You need to demonstrate really quick, tangible wins so that people understand that, um, you know, you can execute 
efficiently yep. um, while bringing in that whole holistic word called sustainability mm. into the picture. Um, that's how you build momentum and trust and you can keep that going. It's almost like a legacy thing yep. um, where, you know, I think the holy grail, Mike, for people like myself, um, I'm not sure if I, should, if I say this and I'm shooting myself in the foot, but our ultimate goal is to make our roles redundant. Yeah, no, I like that you said that. I mean, it, it, the way I think about my best comparison for that is if a not-for-profit is tr- truly um, solving the problem that it's set up to solve, it should also not exist after a certain time period. It, the, the problem becomes where we overlay a lot of human uh, biases to that sort of equation. So, you know, we're, we're emotionally invested, so we want it to run forever. Uh, but how can something, if you're not effectively solving a problem, you should either change how you solve the problem, uh, you've solved it, therefore you don't exist, or, you know, those are sort of the main two options or, or, you know, just somebody else's better place to solve that problem than you. So I think it, it's an interesting one because, yeah, there's, there's that human overlay that we have to deal with as well. That's right. If you think about the that's, – that's such a good point, Mike. Mm. You know, if you think about the sustainable development goals, mm. I think it's 16 goals. Yeah. And you – 17. Or 17 yeah. goals. And if you – I think the last goal is partnership, isn't yeah. it? Um, and the 17 goals, you would think of it as a laundry list of things we need to do yeah. to fix our planet. Um, but this this is seen as an additional 17 things which we need to do when if we had kind of done it right initially and upfront and and along the way, then we don't really need those 17 things. So similar to a sustainability professional mm. or a not-for-profit, we have been asked to do what we do because there is something that needs to be fixed. Yep. Um, but if we do a good job, uh, but not we as an I, but if we as a collective come together as a business or as a not-for-profit or as a movement, if we come together and from the heart and from the head relate the message, which gets everyone excited, not in the short, but in the long term, then that laundry list or that sustainability professional all ceases to exist mm. because that just becomes the way we do things. Yeah. Business the, as yeah, usual. The new business or the new company or the new not-for-profit has that embedded in its how it does things. That's it. But I think we're so far from that, aren't we? It's sort of a, a long way. I'm curious to ask you actually about how um, you started at Reaches. So maybe a little bit about how um, – why would um, – it's, it's obviously a big investment or decision to have someone of your caliber uh, on board and helping with such an important project. Why was sustainability a project that Regis wanted to tackle now and in the shape that it has done so with you? So it's a good question. I think anytime someone asks me that, I think of three reasons why Koshik may have been brought on board hmm. for a company that's just starting on its journey. Yep. I think the first one is definitely it is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. It is the right thing to do. It's better to do something than nothing. <laughs> the second one is um, there's a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. That's just the honest truth. Yep. Uh, it's better to see someone doing something than seeing someone not doing something. For sure. Um, and the third one is there's also some really good operational outcomes that can be achieved from having someone as a sustainability um, professional. But I think ultimately the main thing is it is it is definitely the right thing to do. And that was recognized over a period of time by key stakeholders within the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, if you take my previous company, which is KPMG Australia, mm-hmm. um, they, ha- they had and still have and will continue to have a very strong focus on reconciliation for Indigenous Australians. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was brought on board, um, 
climate change was the question that was raised, saying, Koshik, come on in. We're doing some amazing things around the social aspect, but the environmental focus has been slipping through the cracks. Can we try and build a position around that? Um, so what, what I love to do, Mike, as a job, as anything in life, is to build something from the ground up, build the value proposition, because there's nothing better than starting something from scratch with a, a, an organization, a brand, or a collective group that's got their heart and their head in the right place, mm. doing it for a few years, and then seeing the impact, walking away, and seeing it continue to grow. Yeah. That snowball effect. So what you're telling me, Kaushik, is that this is a very selfish pursuit. It's really just... Uh... <laughs> Man builds incredible. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing you, mate. Pretty much. <laughs> you're, you're creating um, wonderful legacies, though, through this kind of work, though, aren't you? Because I guess what you must be thinking, and feel free to just pull me up where I'm wrong, yeah. but you know, you, you're just part of, you're a small spark at the beginning of the Regis journey. Tiny. Tiny. Yeah. Tiny, Mike. And I think that's Not the beauty tiny, of it. It's a significant spark. Yeah, um, if you looked at if you look at the grand scheme of things, whether it was it, this current organization or in previous organizations where we're starting something from scratch, the word sustainability has no clout. Yep. It doesn't have a seat at the table. It doesn't it's have much budget. Probably almost got a negative currency because you can't yes. even imagine it. People yeah. are worried. Am I here to plant trees? <laughs> Am I here to switch off lights? Honestly, <laughs> yeah. that's that that was the impression. Um, before I joined mm. in, in many organizations is, is this guy coming in to do things that we could do? Mm. And of course, what I do needs to be done by others. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's part of the problem with this area is that we do work with fairly specialized skills a lot of the time, the consultant's toolkit, if you will. Mm. But, uh, you know, I think the framing of it is internally, we could just do this ourselves. What that means is we'll try and do it without the proper kind of uh, parameters or skills or tools maybe necessary to do it the right way? Yes. Good point, Mike. So I'll give you an example about um, one of my classes in university. So most of my students are studying accounting, finance, policy, marketing, anything but environment or sustainability. Mm -hmm. And they're in my class, listening to me ramble on for 12 weeks about sustainability accounting. I would totally do that. Uh, yes, thank you. Yeah, I, <laughs> I will add you to my waiting list, which is non-existent. Um, and one of my students, she, first week, came up to me at the end of the class and said, I'm not getting this. I'm an accountant by trade, CPA. Mm -hmm. I don't know where you're going with this lecture. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm going to be back week two. Okay. Week two went by week three, and she started actually moving forward and forward in class uh, in terms of where she sat. <laughs> week 12, she finished all 12 weeks and then came to meet with me at KPMG one day after the after the semester ended and said, you know, Koshik, I just want to thank you, this good class, all that sort of stuff, which was very humbling, very grateful um, that she got some some use out of it. But what was probably the icing for me, Mike, is an accountant hardcore accountant mm. wanting to balance debits and credits, um, ended up getting a job with Ernst & Young mm. in the climate change team in Beijing. Oh, that's awesome. That's very exciting. The best part is she will take sustainability, she will take accounting, amalgamate it into something that many people won't really understand, but there's an internal champion in yep. there bringing the two things together. And so coming to your point about specialist skills mm. versus generalist skills, 
um, in my current organization and in previous organizations, you have procurement, you have marketing, you have finance, you have all these different what we might call silos yep. or we might call divisions. And the beauty of what we do, what you do, what I do, what speakers on your podcast do mm. is they can speak in a language that many divisions, many departments, many silos can potentially connect with. Yeah. Um, and I think that's it's more than a specialist skill. I think sustainability professionals require very articulate influential communication skills. Yes. And if you can get that, it's very easy to empower other divisions mm. to do what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting people across the line on exactly what this S word means and why it's important for you, that's the challenge. That's the hurdle which can either make or break a company's sustainability agenda. Yeah. And so just to reflect that, because I mean, I think once you, you've got the green light from a board or an executive team to do a sustainability project that's fantastic but you've still got to obviously build the um the momentum internally and the the believers and the belief what about getting to the point of uh an organization and it's not sure why it should do a a a sustainability project or be involved is there kind of if you want to talk a bit about the case for sustainability so to speak or why a big organization would put time into that Mm. you went went through some of the things before Mm. um like operational efficiencies, um, doing the right thing, you know, the, sort of some of the ones are practical, ones are more of a moral reason. Mm. Um, can, can you delve a bit more into that and explore that? Sure. So there's generally three stages for a company to start taking sustainability seriously. Three stages, uh, Mike. And the first stage is that case. Why is it important? And that's where you bring in a champion. You get a voice um, and they generally bring someone in because it might be out of compliance or it might be a reaction. Um, so uh, a reactive approach to a carbon tax, a reactive approach to modern slavery legislation. Mm. Um, these might be the reasons why a company might take its first step. But whatever the reason might be, it is a step. And that step has to be leveraged. That step has to be nurtured mm. and that step has to be grown into something bigger than Ben-Hur. Um, and the, the next step is where you start thinking of it as a, you know, from a, from a commercial lens. So you've got your motherhood statement. You've got companies saying we're about to become very sustainable. We've got a policy. We've got this. We've got that. We've done our, uh, you know, due diligence on our supply chain to identify human rights risks or modern slavery risks. But then that next stage is where, okay, so you've come in as a sustainability person. You've got us having a vision around this. Now, exactly what kind of implementation can you do Mm. that shows us that there are some wins and it aligns with the business strategy, the broader business strategy. And that's what I call the the second stage in sustainability. Um, And the third one is going beyond boundaries. So this is where I think many companies, especially in Australia, are far from, far from uh, continents like Europe and other other parts of the world. Um, And this is where you start thinking about it as as a compared advantage, but you also start kind of leveraging it into what could be tomorrow's agenda um, for the company. So initially you start of it with, you start with sustainability as a, as a conscious reactive approach, but you want to finish it with an unconscious proactive approach. If companies can, if you can get that shift in the thinking or the mindset of the companies from step one to step three, you know, as a sustainability professional, it is embedded Mm. in the DNA, but that first step, 
it can be operational mm. it can be due diligence it can be a risk you know one of the things mike i think one of the best ways to get sustainability started in a company that doesn't get it is to look at it as a risk and you measure it through through the you know the value creation yep. um aspect so that that would be my my response to your question that's a great answer yeah. a few things to pick you up on there that i thought were interesting so alignment aligning the mm. social and environmental mm. objectives to the um the business and its mm. revenue pipeline mm. uh, is critical. Mm. And I think, you know, whenever you're working on a project and you, you're sort of looking at the team who's going to be the sponsor of that project and you mm. think um, probably a decent percentage of them want to do the project because it's for good anyway. Yes. But uh, the ones who are left over and usually the financial team at the least is going to be thinking, what is the business case for this and how does this translate into dollars uh, saved or dollars on the bottom line? Yes. Uh, so th- I think that's a very critical part of what you were saying. Step two, um, commercial yeah, step two, step orientation. Step, two, yeah. step so, three is strategic orientation. Yeah. And that's where you start having, you know, chief sustainability officers, chief purpose officers. Yeah. These people start getting a seat on the executive yeah. um, leadership team. But I think step two is where you have the biggest challenge. Mm. And I can honestly say, Mike, from my experience, the number of business cases I've had to do, the number of modeling, quantitative modeling I've had to do, mm. the number of paybacks in IRRs, um, all these financial metrics, the number of times they have had to be presented to try and facilitate the sustainability agenda or, you know, facilitate change has been, I can't count on two hands, um, but it has been absolutely integral in getting non-believers to become believers, mm. in getting laggards to become leaders. Um, and, it's it's important. Our finance team in my current organization are on board. Um, it took two business cases. It took a payback of three years or less, and it took, you know, an annual saving of a million dollars from a financial acumen, for, from a commercial orientation for them to say, okay, step two, all good. Let's maybe think about step three a couple of years from now. So commercial orientation is the name of the game. And if you're going to be a sustainability professional, mm. especially if you're an educator, in universities, because I've seen a number of course materials being delivered that is about saving the environment and, you know, doing social due diligence and all this sort of stuff, which Mm. is paramount, extremely important. You know, if you look at the World Economic Forum, I love quoting this, the top 10 risks Mm. in their global risks report. Uh, Out of the top 10, top three are environmental risks, Mm. right? So you need to know what is, what is the impact of your, your, um, uh, activities on the environment. I think we live the equivalent of 1.7 planets, but we have only one planet. Mm. So everyone, Australia, Australia lives the equivalent of 5.2 planets. So we are degrading more than we can kind of renew. Um, but having said that in the current environment, in the current generation, in the current way of thinking, um, commercial acumen is extremely important. And if you look at social, I think social sustainability is the one that's tough to crack. Yeah. Um, many people, there's um, uh, many organizations trying to quantify the, the social impact mm. of their donations mm. or the time spent volunteering or whatnot, but it's it's subjective. Yeah. As having worked as a consultant, I can say there's objectivity and there's mm. subjectivity. Yeah, definitely. But, yeah. Please. You're absolutely right, and I yeah. think that's why uh, when we look at social return on investment, uh, you can't compare them between organisations because uh, they're all designed to make you look better than the next one. Um, so it's really apples and oranges. Um, probably the only way you could do it well is comparing your own social return on investment you know, at different time periods and then comparing afterwards. 
So that's uh, certainly interesting. I'm curious to know about you uh, and how you think about your own impact, because obviously the impact that you're having at uh, Regis is, you know, substantial and Regis will become an exemplar, hopefully, for a whole range of other organisations to do similar type of projects. Does, is that sort of how you think you're having the most impact or what will you kind of be thinking about in, in your own mix of your life and going forward, how to have the most impact? Oh, that's a massive question. One that I should actually ask my parents because <laughs> they've been following my journey and say, what kind of impact do you think your son has had? They really ask that? <laughs> impact? <laughs> oh, yeah, I haven't met my parents, Mike. Uh, <laughs> tough, to them. tough couple. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in terms of my impact, that's actually a really good question and one that I probably might en- may end up giving you a wishy-washy answer. Um, but if you look at the trajectory of my journey, right, and to the listeners of this podcast, I've given you a, a little bit of an insight into my life. But um, I've been in sustainability now for 12 years. I've lived, uh, you know, I've lived in Africa, in America, in India, and now in Australia. I used to be a tennis player. I've worked as a tennis coach. Um, and in between, I, I might share something a little bit personal, Mike, because I think from from your audience's perspective, it might help connect a few dots. Sure. Um, when I was 13, I grew up in, obviously I grew up in Lagos with my parents. John Newcomb found me, a very famous Australian tennis player, and said, come over to Texas and I'm going to make you the next big thing, right? So as an only child, um, all I knew was tennis and my parents. And in a very conservative upbringing, I didn't know what was right or wrong. And my parents said, go, and I left. So I thought that I was going to become a superstar mm. in tennis. Um, at 13, for a whole year in Texas, I was unfortunately physically bullied by six tennis players, six boys, because it was a tennis school. Um, and for a whole year, it was not a very comfortable environment to be in, but it was something quite new for me. I didn't know how to process it. And I couldn't tell my parents because I was very worried about the sacrifices they had made mm. and what repercussions it'll have if I told them the truth about this sacrifice. And the reason I share this insight into my life is if you ask me what impact would I like to have or what legacy would I leave or whatever it might be, it's not really focusing on sustainability. It's not focusing on tennis. It's not focusing on any one thing in particular, because in this world, there are many things. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of subjects. There's a lot of things that there are amazing people to deliver on. For me personally, I'm very humbled and grateful that taking that one traumatic year and channeling it into something positive, which has ended up into what I currently work in, this every day is an impact for me. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it Mike. makes total sense. Right. I, I mean, I think I, I think um, what you've done is you've set out to be a tennis superstar, but you become a sustainability superstar. So it was an way, accident. It's a yeah, but life, a life pleasant is full accident. of you know twists and turns and roundabouts, swings and roundabouts. But I think uh, what you're doing. Uh, why I was curious is because. Sometimes I think about, um, you know, just a snapshot of what we do. And it might only be, you know, a few years' work. But um, sometimes you get the opportunity to do projects that can be just transformational. And so, you know, I think very much that um, for you, you know, this project will be uh, transformational for you. But also you will see um, that part of your 
uh, greater journey might be to um, just be the, be the ripple maker. Mm. So you go to different industries and do um, great sustainability work and then, um, you know, leading the pack in that space. Then all the other ones of the second tiers and, you know, even the others in the first who see that think, oh, we need to do that as well. Mm. So you're actually sparking industry-wide change through your work. Mm. I think so – what I said before was a little bit emotional and qualitative, mm. but if you think about it from a quantitative sense, in my in in one of my previous roles, the impact we had in terms of contribution to the community was thirty million dollars yep. per year. KPMG, yep, very proud of that. Yep. In my current organization, we're about to do a couple of massive projects, which financially and environmentally will have a massive impact, and this is through a budget of let's say three million dollars yep. approximately. Um, and so if I had to measure my impact, uh, and when I say my, it's not mine, it is the organization yeah. collectively, yeah. the impact from a sustainability corporate citizenship point of view has been uh, something that's very uh, lucky and yeah. happy. Um, and I would like to continue doing this going forward. Yeah. But what what would give me the most satisfaction is... Uh, is my favorite thing to do in the world, Mike, is converting non-believers to believers. Yep. And it started with me. I was a non-believer in myself. Yep. And now I'm a believer. Yep. I'm the biggest believer in myself. Yep. Um, I was not necessarily a non-believer, but I didn't know what sustainability was in 2008. I, I didn't know what climate change was. I mean, I kind of knew, but it was not something I was thinking to make a career out of, right? And 12 years later, a non-believer in a subject matter mm. is now a believer. Mm. Um, so I think over the next maybe 30 years of my professional journey, the impact I would like is to take non-believers along the way, convert them into becoming believers, make sure that whatever we do is embedded within that setting um, and have good, strong commercial economic outcomes balanced with minimal impact on the environment mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and a positive impact on the community. So this is me working in a business, in a corporate setting. If I was to say, let's say, work for the United Nations or an international organization, mm -hmm. the impact I would like to have might be slightly different. Yeah, or if I become sure. an academic, the impact will be different. But you are an academic, so you're kind of you're definitely at university. You have a good PhD. Don't give me that look. <laughs> you know you're a proper academic. It, it looks good, lie. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're what they're now calling pracademic. So you're a pracademic, practical academic. Right. So you're out there making change, and then you're teaching about the change in the system. So. I actually think you're making change at a few levels. You've got that system change and then the problem change. Usually when people have a career, they have to choose, you know, am I going to be a systems, am I going to work on the machine or in the machine is sort of my mm. favourite analogy. And I think um, right now um, you're working in the machine but with a big company that can, you know, have a lot of change. Mm. You're also, when you do the stuff that you do at uni and the, the teaching and you write, you've written over 28 peer-reviewed papers or something like that. I did, I did look at your LinkedIn beyond the tennis stuff. <laughs> I'm your, I'm, my ego's like through the roof right now, Mike. <laughs> we'll bring I don't it, know what we'll to say. We'll bring it back down to earth soon. <laughs> but, you know, so that's a few levels of change that you're operating on. It's really, um, it's it's amazing. And that's where I ask about people's impact. I like to know why people have their mm. life mix, but, you know, you're definitely um, – you got a few areas of focus and you're, mm. you're doing great things in all of them. Mm. Thank you, firstly. It's very kind of you mm. to, to say those things. I think the other thing, even for your audience, you know, those who are thinking about sustainability as a potential career pathway or thinking about how to get into it, get into it. Mm. Um, you know, I, many people ask me, should I study? Should I go into consulting? Should I go in-house? All those sorts of things. And one of the things that I can share from a personal point of view is the PhD. You know, because you brought it up, it just triggered a memory. I have to say, having spent 
a couple of years entrenched in research mm. around CSR uh, gave me a really good grounding around what this issue actually means, what this word means, what this topic means, what businesses actually think about it versus what they actually want to do, yep. um, where the gaps are, uh, and uh, how to kind of fill in those blanks. So for people listening and, and wanting to, you know, potentially, I'm not saying do a PhD, um, but there's a lot of really good research out there. There's a lot of really good publications out there, quite easy to find and free of charge. Um, which can which can completely blow your mind. Um, well, spe- speaking of that, maybe we always talk about books and learning. So yeah. one thing I'd love to ask you is um, if there's anything you've read recently or uh, are you a book reader, your podcast listener? How do, you, how do you stay on top of everything and be yeah. your best learning self? So the type of books I read are like <laughs> The Art of War by Sun Tzu and uh, not necessarily, I don't really read um, sustainability, climate change, uh, you know, those, those kind of books, mm. because that's, that's all I did for, for, for many years when I was doing my doctorate. You need a break from that stuff. I, oh, you'd be, <laughs> it's, it's unreal how much you read at that time. Um, but what, the way I keep up to date now, Mike, with my subject matter is, is, um, through peer review journals. Um, and because I teach at universities, I have access to to the latest mm-hmm. trends mm-hmm. around what's what's the next big thing, next big innovation, next big startup, um, uh, and that's how I keep up to date with with sustainability and CSR. But I read books on other things, like um, it's nothing to do with work. It's more about you know behaviors or traveling yeah. and, and things like that. Do you read like um, self improvement and productivity stuff? Uh, actually, I don't. Um, and, and, um, (laughs) this, this might be a little bit left field, left field for you and maybe even for this podcast, but my wife, um, she's in, she reads a lot of that stuff and she gets very annoyed with me when I've had a very stressful day at work, but I come home with a smile and sleep 10 hours (laughs) without any stress. And she asks me, how do you do it when you don't read books and things like that? Mm. And again, Mike, this comes back to the, the root cause, the root cause of what happened at the age of 13. And the, the, the way we channel it over the next few years mm. kind of, um, taught me a few things on how to just manage self, yep. manage well-being, yep. uh, manage priorities in life. You want to talk, take me through a bit more of that managing self and well-being stuff? Cause you, you, I mean, so you're telling me literally that you can have a horrible day, still come home smiling and then sleep 10 hours. Is that because you're working in an area that you're in very much alignment with and you love or what's the uh, secret? <laughs> Yeah, uh, good question. What's the secret? Oh, no, maybe just if you can tell me, are there things that you're doing that we should we can learn from? Oh, so you know how they say the indicator for GDP at the moment is maybe wrong? Yeah. And maybe you should use things like happiness yeah, and, and yeah, other things. Yeah. Um, I'm a firm believer in that we create our own destiny um, and we get a chance every morning to make choices that we can either choose to appreciate and celebrate or regret. Um, but we are in control of, of our destiny in a manner in a manner of speaking, of yep. course. There are other external factors. But for me, I can't really share uh, what what I do, Mike, is I um, wake up in the morning and I wake up with a smile. I don't think about work for the first 30 minutes. Um, I My full focus is on my wife and making sure that we're off to a good start. Um, I come into work smiling, no matter what the situation might be for the day. Um, it's not necessarily because I love what I do or I love where I am. It's true. I love what I do and I love where I am. But it's more about I'm feeling very grateful for for life. 
It might sound very cheesy. It sounds very awesome. corny, we're, we're, but I live it every yeah. day. So you have like a very intentional approach to gratitude, and, yes. uh, and you, you're making the positive choice to embrace every day. Yes, yeah. and it's for me. If I have, you know, when I have teams, small successes are celebrated. Yeah. Uh, challenges are uh, discussed. Um, but the, the many people say, you know, in a relationship between a husband and wife, don't go to bed angry, right? It's the same thing with work. It's the same thing with anything I, I think I do in life, which is not to take things too seriously yep. because there's a lot of bad things out there and we are in a lucky state. So we should appreciate everything we have. That's that's my my take on that's things. I'm sure answer. many people have their own. That's a very takes. different answer. I, usually, people are like oh, I meditate, but that's that's great to have a, a different answer. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I um I don't meditate. I've never meditated in my life. I've never had a headache in my life. Mm. Um, and my wife sometimes she says you should write a book on how you just. Yeah, you should. You should. You actually I'm, should. I don't. Th- I don't think I will. I think you but should write a peer-reviewed paper on just how to stay extremely positive yeah, and be awesome. If I be. figure it out, then I maybe I will. <laughs> but at the moment, I have no idea what I do. <laughs> I'm sure you've got enough on your uh, plate to to go on with. Are there any big ideas in your space that have sort of got you excited in the sustainability or CSR space? Big ideas. So innovation is a plenty. If you look at waste, if you look at energy. Um, but I think it's that social space that I'm really excited about. Um, it's not necessarily innovative, but I already alluded to the, the term modern slavery a couple of times. And I think this is an issue that is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was at the National Sustainability Conference in Brisbane last week, and I met with the interim uh, anti-slavery or uh, anti-slavery commissioner for New South Wales. Um, and not necessarily an innovation, but the challenge that she has ahead of her, mm. um, I think it's very exciting. It's daunting, but with my background, where you want to convert non-believers to believers or take a big big company or organization on a journey, I think this issue of modern slavery is important. Mm. But what can come out of that? The positive impacts that can come out of that? Because I really don't think anyone's really got a good handle on their value chain. And if you think of an iceberg, 10%, the tip is the operations. Yep. The bottom 90% is where the fat is. Yeah. And if you're not sure about the 90%, at some point, it's going to come and bite you. Yeah. Um, so I think the modern slavery is that compliance bit that's giving a bit of a wake-up call. And now we stop looking at it as, as, a, as a more than a metaphor, but actually something that's you know we're going to use to help and drive change. Um, so I'm actually very curious to see what kind of innovations and big things companies are going to come mm. up with to manage, mitigate, but also eliminate these sort of risks in their supply chain. I work in, I'm doing a lot of environment energy related things at the moment, and I'm going to start looking at waste next financial year. So plastics um, is a massive thing. Um, Solar is a big thing. Uh, Geothermal, there's so many different things happening. But here's my point, Mike. Innovations are great, um, but we need to make sure the foundations are rock solid. Mm because then that gives way to innovations in an area which is not always easily understood. So I'm yeah. always very hesitant to discuss innovations. Yeah, uh, and but I you're think, right. I think people tend it's, towards the moonshot ideas rather than the practical innovations that can make things that 1% or 2% better. That's it. You we, know, the sum of small gains. We recently ran a campaign in my current organization. Um, it was an employee engagement campaign, mm. and we we 
put send posters to all our sites. So we got about sixty seven sites across Australia, and we said, "Give us your best ideas on how to minimize our environmental impact." In the end, we got a thousand two hundred ideas. A thousand two hundred ideas. Uh, unique ideas. So, uh, so unique ideas would be probably six hundred. Yeah. Wow, that's six seven hundred. Awesome. Which is but it's also great that a lot of people agreed on some ideas. That that helps you a lot too. Yeah. Agreement, the excitement, mm. the passion, um, but ninety nine point or maybe even hundred percent of all the ideas were basic, really basic sort mm. of things, but collectively massive. Oh, collectively impact. that's huge. If you have, um, you know, even out of that six hundred samples, say you do fifty ideas that improve things by a half a percent, huge. it's huge, huge, yeah. and um, so that's. The baby steps. Mm. Those are the things that, that, that's what makes me tick. Um, I'm far from, you know, the Elon Musk's and those kind of visionaries. And yeah. you need those, those sort of people. They're yeah. the, um, I'm not sure if that's the appropriate example, but for me, ultimately, I want to have a transformational leader who will take these baby steps mm-hmm. and these things, combine it with their, um, voice and yep. their vision from the top and turn it into something that's step three, which I mentioned earlier. So, um, yeah, transactional to transformational. That's awesome. So, look, fascinating having you on the show. No, you want to beat the commute out of here? <laughs> no, thank you. Thanks, Mike. It's been a it's been a hectic day. We had protesters, my, uh, and my hats off to you for being the vegan protesters <laughs> and the uh, the tramwork disruptions. And I, you know, sustainable guy, public transport. Respect, so full respect, respect. That's right. Shout out to Kaushi. Um, how can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Um, so. I don't know if this is the right avenue to uh, talk about my new blog. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so this is this is just a hobby. It's nothing more. Mm. Um, it's called Life with Dr. Koshik. So it's drkoshik.wordpress.com. Uh, so mm-hmm. this blog is basically just a, I don't want to say rant, but it is a rant of Ooh. random thoughts that pops in my head once or twice a month excellent and i write things on there but it's you know you can connect you can read about my stuff there you can find me on linkedin um you know this do you yeah. want to just um spell out your name for linkedin if yeah sure yep so my first name is uh k-a-u-s-h-i-k mm-hmm. koshik and if people can't pronounce my name i always refer to koshi from sunrise with a k at the end <laughs> just a shout out to koshi from sunrise if he's listening <laughs> and my surname is uh, streeter so s-r-i D H A R, Koshik's reader. Awesome. I, I definitely, I had the first part right, but I was worried to get the last part wrong. So I just sort of thought I'd let you do it. <laughs> yes, no, thank. And I also want to thank you, Mike. Um, so, you know, we connected at the Rotary event, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and, you know, Mike introduced me to the, the, the concept of a podcast. Uh, and, um, you know, I've been listening to a, a number of your posts and, um, and it's, it's very, uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have a chat with you on Humans of Purpose. Uh, I think you do some fascinating work. Um, and, you know, even on a separate note, would love to collaborate where possible because I think like-minded people connecting and collaborating. I know people, all people say this and, and it's done, but it can't be said enough, right? Where, Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's sometimes it can be really hard to find that, that person that you really connect with. And mm. I'm, you know, I'm very grateful for being here today and I look forward to working with you. Well, you've been a wonderful guest. So thank you so much for coming. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player. Why not share the podcast with a friend? You could also leave us a five-star review in your podcast player. 
You may also want to join us for one of our regular live podcasts or to become a show sponsor. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com.au and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook.